best part of the year for college basketball is almost upon us. The calendar is turning the March. Regular season is winding down. Selection Sunday is in less than two weeks. And after that, it's finally time for March Madness. Welcome to Beyond the Bracket, a special edition series of the Sportsbeat KC podcast that's here to get you ready for the NCAA tournament. Presented by First Federal Bank of Kansas City. I'm Lila Bromberg, and each week I'm going to be bringing on some of the best reporters and columnists from around the country to discuss college hoops. And starting with the second episode today, we've got you covered with the women's side of things as well, so be sure to stick around for the last 20 minutes or so of the show, where I'll be joined by Augusta Stone, who covers number one South Carolina for the state. To kick things off today, I'm joined by two more insiders into the Blue Bloods of college basketball. I'm so excited to have on Jesse Newell, who covers the Kansas Jayhawks for us here at the Kansas City Star, and Luke DeCock, a columnist for the News and Observer, covering teams across the ACC, including Duke and North Carolina. Thank you guys so much for hopping on. Yeah, thanks, Lila. Appreciate, appreciate you having us. Yeah, good to be here. I'm looking forward to getting some insight from you guys, having some fun debates. Uh, for a quick rundown of the men's portion of today's episode for everyone listening at home, we're going to get an update on both of some of the programs that they cover, uh, specifically Kansas and Duke, both of which remain in the top 10 of the AP poll, discuss how the selection committee evaluates teams and their thoughts on the most important metrics and what you guys should know as we get into selection Sunday and uh, some insight on how the NCAA selection committee decides the seeding. Uh, we'll give our final four picks and games to watch as well but first, a wild weekend of college basketball for the first time in history. The top, the top six teams all lost on the same day. Uh, on Saturday, they were all on the road. Number one, Gonzaga fell 67-57 to number 23, St. Mary's. Number two, Arizona lost at Colorado, 79-63. Number three, Auburn fell to number 17, Tennessee, 67-62. Purdue fell to Michigan State. Purdue was number four, 68-65. Number five, Kansas fell 80-70 to to number 10, Baylor. And number six, Kentucky fell 75-73 at number 18, Arkansas. I mean, what's your guys' reaction as you're watching all that unfold and all these, you know, teams are getting knocked off? I mean, I, some of it, sorry, sorry, Jesse, I'll, I'll, I'll be very quick. You know, some of it are good, is, is, is good teams playing each other. And that happens this late in the season, like, you know, Baylor and um, Tennessee were both favored, both analytically mm -hmm. and in Vegas. So like, we shouldn't be surprised when things like that happen. I mean, certainly the favorites holding, holding serve uh, happens more often than not, but you know, and like if people were surprised that Gonzaga went in and lost at St. Mary's, then they just haven't been paying attention to St. Mary's who I've had in my AP poll on my ballot almost all season because I think, you know, I'm, honestly, I'd say this is someone who's covered the ACC for decades. Uh, the West Coast Conference to me is better than the ACC this year. So, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say I was surprised by some of the results. Certainly them all happening in succession and in sequence made for a crazy day. But I mean, some of this, we, we you know, you, you don't have to be that smart to look at it and say that it was, you know, sort of expected. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think, the all teams were on the road, right? I mean, this is mm -hmm. what happens in college basketball. It's, it's potential, you know, three, four point swing and crazy things happen. And 
This is one where, you know, St. Mary's played a great game. I think Gonzaga, to me, remains the number one team in the country. They're, to me, the odds on favorite to win this thing, even though crazy things happen in a one-and-done sample. But uh, after that, I you know, last year, the numbers would tell you that sort of Gonzaga and Baylor were up toward the top tier. It was great that those two teams played for the national title. And I know Baylor ran away from it, but that's one of those one-game sample things. I think this year, Gonzaga's in a similar place, but then the rest – are behind them. Uh, there really hasn't been that number two team that's risen up. So I think two through six in that poll, you can kind of say, hey, uh, in their respective conferences, when they go on the road and play a tough team, that's where you end up with, as Luke was talking about, either you're a little bit of an underdog or you're kind of in a coin flip type game. And that to me sort of speaks to this year in college basketball, where uh, Gonzaga is probably ahead of the rest and the two through nine or a 10 uh, it kind of depends on your night, how you're shooting and, and how, what your opponent is and where you are. And that's sort of what played out this last weekend. Never to that extent where one through six all lost, but uh, potentially to an extent where in this particular college basketball season, it shouldn't be too surprising. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It really did feel last year that you just knew those two teams were going to be there. And with this year, I think Gonzaga does seem as ahead. It doesn't seem like the national narrative as much has been where they're definitely winning a title and it's hard to see anyone even competing for that. It kind of feels like a year where there's really a large number of teams that are in contention to make a final four, make a strong case to make it far in the tournament. Whereas last year it didn't feel as kind of exciting or suspenseful going into the tournament because you really thought those two teams were going to end up in the championship game. And then they did obviously surprising there with Baylor getting the route the way they were able to but it's certainly shaping up to be an exciting tournament with just how much parity there seems to be like you said kind of those you know two through nine spots I think you know we'll get into how you guys voted Luke I know you even had Baylor uh, number one there in the poll and had Gonzaga at three so it doesn't seem like there's as strong of a consensus as there was last year kind of in that regard uh, you were at that Kansas game, Jesse, what were your thoughts on, on that performance and where Kansas is at in the season now? Yeah. Uh, for Kansas, I it's, it was an interesting game because I got off so, to such a great start against Baylor, but that is one of those games where you walk in and the Jocks are a three point underdog there. So it's, it's a game where you're, you're Bill Self, you're hoping to play well. You're hoping to get off to a good start like they did. And then from there, you're hoping to kind of hang on for dear life because this is a Baylor team that, even through all the injuries this year, um, you know, they've been beating some teams pretty well and the efficiency numbers have kind of liked them all along, even while batting, battling injuries to Jonathan Chamochachua and LJ Cryer, whatever the case may be. But for Kansas, you know, early on, they really were turned up defensively and that's how, when they're that, they're really good because if they can get steals, if they can get defensive rebounds, they can run. And they're one of the best transition teams that Bill Self has ever had. And they're one of the best transition teams in the nation. I put them up there with both. Gonzaga and Arizona. The problem for Kansas is you, you can't run if you don't get stops. And the second half, Baylor really picked on Kansas and a little bit big man, uh, Dave McCormick, by putting Jeremy Sohan at the five position. He was just driving over and over again. KU tried to switch Dave McCormick to Kendall Brown. Kendall Brown hit a three on him. And KU really could just never figure out that small lineup for Baylor. But I sort of feel the same way I feel about Kansas going into that game. We know they're an elite offensive team. We know that defensively they struggle at times. They're going to have to kind of outscore their problems. But if they can get rebounds and they can defend or turn up their level of effort defensively, 
then they can be really good because that just is the motor that gets their offense going. So I think they're a team that definitely could be in the final four. I don't think they're one of the favorites in March to win the whole thing. But uh, if you're Bill Self, you sort of have to be pleased at this point. I mean, you're in the game, you're in the conversation and, and right on that one seed line. So that's really all you can ask at this point in the year. So you mentioned the defense, and I think that's something that certainly stood out. You look at the adjusted efficiency number on defense for Kansas, and that's at 34th in the country right now. A team has never won the national championship ranked lower than 22. How big of a concern is that? And is that something you think that they can turn around? Yeah, and it's good to note on that number is that uh, what happens inevitably in these runs to the NCAA championship is that teams play better over the course mm-hmm. of the late parts of the season. So there's been teams that have won the title that have been 40th, 50th in defensive efficiency at this point in the year. But when you go on a six-game run to win the whole thing, you improve and you get into the top 20, that sort of thing. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's the concern for Kansas. It's, it's sort of a trade-off, though. Um, I always think of these things as – how can you get closest to your ceiling? Um, It's sort of like, if you want to put the football reference on this, like the Chiefs. Um, If you have Patrick Mahomes and you can add a receiver as a weapon that makes the offense not just best in football, but like lapping the field offensively, but it hurts your defense a little bit, that might be okay. I mean, lapping the field offensively and being the absolute best by a long shot, that can get you maybe a higher ceiling than having a really good offense and a so-so defense, you know, you kind of have to put the pieces together. So uh, for Kansas, it's, it's sort of figuring out that puzzle for Bill Self. Like when you put Remy Martin in the game for Kansas, who just came off of his knee injury and, and missed seven games, it makes them better offensively and worse defensively. Is that better for the team? Uh, you know, it's hard to tell because maybe that makes them the best offensive team in the nation, but the 50th defensive team. Is that closer to your ceiling than what they have so far? I, I don't know that answer. So Like I said, for Kansas, it's a lot like the 2017 team and a lot like the 2018 team. They play four guards. They play around one big man inside, and they've got to outscore some of their problems, and and that's going to happen in the tournament. They're just going to have to outrun them. They're going to have to out-transition them, and they're going to have to to be so good offensively that the defense sometimes doesn't matter, and uh, I think that's sort of how they're going to have to play, and they've had success with that in both of those seasons. They made the Elite Eight in one, made the Final Four in the other, but might not have the same sort of top level play that some of the other teams have had uh, and that potentially that some of the national title teams have. So that's sort of where Kansas is right now. They're like I said, they're in the game, but probably not in a position that uh, maybe the elite of the elites out there are. So uh, we'll see what happens over the course of the rest of the season. And Luke with Duke there in North Carolina, and you mentioned, you know, the ACC having a bit of a down year this year. I think that's an interesting point you made of, it seems like the WC has been a better conference this year coach k's final year going to be a big game uh, with that this weekend which we'll talk about but first just what are your thoughts on the season that duke is having right now you know in in some ways i think duke's had a bit of an underrated season um in terms of you you look at the teams they've beaten um and and you know some quote-unquote really good losses um but they had a covid pause uh, right around uh, the holidays uh, that set Wendell Moore back in particular, who had been a really sort of versatile and dynamic guard for them uh, to that point in the season, which, which really kind of slowed them down. And you can kind of look at the Miami loss and the Florida state loss as, as sort of stemming from that. Um, the Duke's biggest issue when you look at their losses uh, has been closing out close games. They've either led in the final minute or had one possession games and all their losses except Ohio State, and that was a game they led by double digits in the second half. So 
But what Duke has to figure out is who has the ball in crunch time, uh, how they're going to play these end of game situations and, and, and get some stops. I mean, one of their issues has been the inability to defend teams like Virginia, Florida state, uh, Miami in some of these late game situations that have really good guards uh, in some cases. Uh, but when you look at the team, they've got a rim defender in Mark Williams, who's as good a defensive forward as there is in the ACC. You've got Paolo Bancaro, who is versatile uh, and, and has a, an NBA polished mid-range game and, and can go outside. A.J. Griffin hasn't been healthy his, really his entire career, just now maybe sort of finding his feet and learning to play healthy. He's their best shooter. Uh, and then, you know, they have Wendell Moore, Jeremy Roach, and Trevor Keels in the backcourt. Heels sort of a pocket Justice Winslow, this sort of very big, strong uh, guy for his his position. But none of them's really a true point guard. Uh, Jeremy Roach is supposed to be, and he's, he's still a little bit more of a combo guard. They've got to figure out who's going to have the ball in crunch time. And, and, you know, they've had some success giving it to Bancaro as sort of a point forward, which if you look at the way that Duke has lost in the last couple of NCAA tournaments that it's, that it's played in, you know, in 2019, the ball wasn't in Zion's hands at the end. Uh, so, so there's something to be said for Duke going into the tournament, trying to find ways to get the ball in its best player's hands. But I do think when you look at Duke's analytics, you look at Duke's sort of resume metrics, they are brought down a little bit by the sort of what the, the numbers perceive the ACC to be. I mean, the ACC is going to get four or five bids. That's historically low for this con- conference. Um, I think that's, that's hurt Duke's reputation a bit because people don't feel like they're playing in that traditional you know, knock down, drag out ACC that, that, that we've kind of come to expect over the years, but it's still a very powerful and talented team. I honestly think once Duke gets through Saturday and this final home game at Cameron for Mike Krzyzewski, things actually get easier for Duke. Like there's not going to be any more pressure on Duke in the ACC or NCAA tournament than there will be Saturday to, to finish this thing right against North Carolina, against a North Carolina team that while not having a terrific record and being very inconsistent, is very explosive and could absolutely come in and give Duke everything it can handle. With that pressure and having Coach K's final season, that final home game, that was something that we talked about last week with CL Brown a bit, was just how that could possibly play a factor in the tournament of knowing this is your coach's last year, last shot at a title. Obviously, a lot of buzz with that North Carolina game this week how do you see that all impacting the team you know I, I i don't i i think there's going to be more pressure on this game than there usually is because so many former players will be there Leitner's going to be there i mean guys who don't normally come back for these games are going to be there in fact there's so many former players coming back that Duke had to say no to celebrities who wanted to go <laughs> because so many of the tickets have been allocated and the pressure to not just for senior night and k's final game Um, but not to screw this up. I mean, I think that's really the pressure. It doesn't really matter in the NCAA or ACC scheme of things. If Duke wins uh, on Saturday, especially if Duke wins at Pittsburgh on Tuesday, uh, that would secure the the number one seed in the regular season title. Uh, But there's just going to be so much pressure to to not screw it up. Uh, Now, the thing about playing at Duke is it's the same as Kansas, especially in the NCAA tournament. You're always expected to win. So there's always that pressure. I, I think there may actually compared to the pressure on them not to screw up Saturday, that may actually be less pressure in the postseason uh, than, than, than what they're going to deal with on Saturday. And you have Duke ranked at number two in the AP poll, which kind of brings me to 
wanted to get your guys' thoughts on how you rank your teams in the poll, get some thoughts on teams that you guys maybe are higher on than some people are lower on than some people. Uh, Jesse, I'll start with you. Uh, I know you've gotten some attention in the past for how you rank teams. And I think it's really interesting. And this will play into our discussion on how teams are evaluated and metrics and things like that. Where, what was your thought process this week looking at your AP poll when you have those top six teams lose and then how analytics play into everything? Yeah, you're talking about getting uh, criticism in the past. Uh, you're talking about like an hour ago, I think, is, uh, <laughs> is what, you're, what you're potentially talking about here. Uh, no, I mean, I do it a little bit different way than most people uh, do in this. And I, I think Luke talked about this earlier, and I really appreciate this discussion because he's he understands what I think a lot of people maybe don't when you're looking at the college basketball landscape. And, you know, you start by saying there's lots of different ways to do this. And it's not really a right or wrong to me. It's just kind of a different shades of, of how you potentially look at this. But what Luke mentioned and what I think is absolutely true, you can rank teams or rate teams on two different ways, either most deserving or best. Okay. And by most deserving, I mean, how many games did you win against the schedule compared to what you think? Okay. So you're basically, this is kind of what the NCAA tournament selection committee looks at. Like uh, for example, a team like Providence, I mean, they have won every single close game this year and they deserve credit for that. And they're going to get credit for that as probably a three or four seed in the NCAA tournament. If you look at best teams, we can look at every single possession. How did you perform on every possession compared to what a good team performs? And that takes into account your, uh, margin of victory, you know, your efficiency, all those sorts of things. Over time, over time, that tells us more who the best teams are and who we would expect to win like Vegas, well, Vegas lines, that sort of thing. So a lot of pollsters look at most deserving teams. A lot of both pollsters look at, or maybe only one looks at best teams. Sometimes people fall in the middle of that and they try to kind of split the baby a little bit and say, hey, I'll kind of go in between these two metrics. The way I've done it, I've just kind of gone all the way to the best team. So I like to look at the analytics. I like to look at a lot of the, the rankings out there. And so there are teams, um, studies have shown, you know, Providence is a perfect example. I think they're 11 and one, something like that, in games aside by five or less or overtime this year. Uh, studies have shown over time that that sort of thing is usually not as much in your control as we as humans want it to be. So Providence is, I mean, we don't have to use the word lucky, but they are an outlier when it comes to these performances. So the, the, this would tell us that they're probably not quite as good as what most people are ranking them in the AP poll. I think they're ninth this week. That's going to be a team that I'm lower on uh, comparatively. So that's how I look at my poll. I try to rank best because to me, if you're going one through 10, you're, if you're asking me to rank the best cards, I'm not saying, oh, well, how did that perform in this weird you know, setting? Or I'm, I'm just ranking to rank the best cards. You know? So I'm trying to rank the best teams and, and trying to figure out who would be favored on neutral court, what is Vegas looking at, and, and kind of try to implement those sorts of numbers. Leads to a lot of disagreements. It leads to a lot of fan bases, Auburn, Providence, um, not liking me that much. but Wisconsin just, for a change. Wisconsin for a change, uh, especially since they, they're really analytically savvy because they don't have many possessions. So they understand this whole possession based thing. But uh, like I said, it, it, it's what it is. And I'm consistent with every week. And I think mostly, uh, hopefully people are just trying to ask us to do these things and, and try to remain consistent and not have a bunch of biases out there. And if I'm going to have a bias, it's the numbers. I think people have known that about me for a, a whole long time. And it's interesting with your point on Auburn, and I'll get to you on teams you're high or low on. I'm guessing that might be one of the lower ones. But, I mean, you look at Auburn in recent weeks, they've lost now two of their last three games. They had 
close games against Missouri and Georgia, two of the worst teams, not only in the SEC, but worst teams in college basketball. And it's been kind of a concern with them late at games of, you know, their two best players don't really create their own shots. There's been concerns there with Wendell Green in the point guard position and how uh, possessions are going to work late in games. So they lost at Florida, uh, then beat Mississippi, and then lost at Tennessee. Where are you at with them right now? Yeah, I mean, I've got them 10th. Uh, I think that's still tied for the lowest, but you know, not moving too much off what I had them a few weeks ago. I had them ninth when they were on the verge of being number one in the nation. Um, yeah, I, I think so. It, it just sort of depends on your prism here, right? And it's sort of like, I know I do this completely differently than anybody else, but it is strange because there would be Auburn fans coming at me after, like, like you said, the Missouri game, the close game, and they'd go 2-0 and that week. They'd say, how can you not move them up dr- dramatically? And it's almost like I want to be like, if aliens came down here and watched your team this week and saw them play against Missouri and, and only win by two or one or whatever the case may be, they would not think you had a good week. You know what I mean? They would not say that, hey, this was a, an amazing week for your team. You didn't perform that well. But because I think, uh, you know, a lot of us, and I get it, it's it's the mindset of you went 2-0, you did as well as you could this week. Well, again, the numbers are trying to give us more entry points, give us more data, give us more stuff to look at than just say, hey, they're 20-whatever-and-four. That's the only data point you can look at. So, again, I know it's different. I think most of the, the feedback I get from people, though, and I understand this, if you are a fan of a team and they are doing well and they are winning games, the AP poll a lot of times is like justification that your team is having a great year. And if you're Providence and you feel like you've been overlooked for a decade and now your team's having a good year and they don't have any losses and they're having this magical season, you want stupid Jesse Newell in Kansas City or Lawrence to look at your team and say, hey, you guys are having a great year. You know what I mean? Like, I acknowledge you. You're having a great year. So fans, I don't I understand. They don't care if their team's lucky they don't care if they have good close game results they don't care that this whole thing might crumble at the end of the season they care that their team's having a good year and they want people to justify that so I totally get it and I understand if people want to do it different ways because uh, I'm sort of the outlier here not everybody else so I I understand where everybody's coming from I just like I said I see this in a certain way and I understand the numbers and have a background with that so uh, if I'm a little bit off from other people I totally get it and that's why We have 61 other pollsters and people like Luke to keep me in check because my vote only means just this much when it comes to the final say. So before I get from Luke, a team that he likes more than most people or uh, doesn't like compared to other people, what is the team that you are a fan of that isn't being ranked as high in the AP poll you think could surprise some people? Well, there's been a couple all year. Um, Houston is one. Uh, The analytics love them. And it's just really hard. I know we talk about schedules. There are some results that Houston has had this year. Uh, it's really hard to even beat bad teams by huge margins. And uh, they have some numbers on there. Like they beat Bryant 111 to 44. I mean, it's really hard to be like a bad team and beat somebody 111 to 44. Uh, just last month, they played East Carolina and won 79 to 36. I mean, I don't care who you're playing. Like it, it sort of reminds me, everybody, I sometimes hear like the Gonzaga, well, they can't be a great team because they didn't play a good schedule. And I, I just reject that because it's like, what if LeBron James went and played high school basketball? Like it doesn't mean he's not LeBron James. It means he's playing weaker competition and he's going to beat him by a million points. And then that's how you can tell that he's still LeBron James. So uh, a team like Houston goes in, in that regard. 
I've been higher on Iowa than a lot of people for a long time. Uh, they're a team that has had an elite offense all year and kind of that has, has stuck out over time. So I would say those are two of them that uh, I've probably been higher on than others, but Houston is definitely one that uh, if they made a final four run, I wouldn't be surprised, but they kind of still remain in the, the teens when it comes to the AP poll. And Houston definitely is just such an impressive job by Kelvin Sampson losing two of their you know, best players and still being able to continue to do that at a high level. Uh, Luke, what about you? What's a team that you are higher on the most and lower on the most? Oh, I'm, I'm probably higher on those West Coast Conference teams. I had San Francisco pretty high in my top 25 at one point. Um, you know, a team that pays a lot of attention to analytics. Uh, St. Mary's now. Um, you know, and, and, and my approach, generally speaking, I mean, I, I have a ton of respect for, for Jesse's approach, and, and I think I have a sort of modification of it. Uh, it's probably closer to him than most voters. Uh, where, I mean, I'm definitely looking at sort of the predictive analytics that, that he's focusing heavily on. And, and um, but I also, I also think what you've done um, is matters and, I, and, and there's nothing right or wrong about that. That's just a, you know, every pollster has to kind of decide for themselves what the criteria are. And there are certainly bad criteria, like head to head results is a terrible way to decide how to rank teams, but people do it. They're like, well, how can you have Villanova ahead of Providence and Providence just beat Villanova. It's like, well, you know, would, would you say that, you know, do I, does that mean I have to put Arizona state ahead of UCLA? Like people get caught up in that. Like, thank like you, the, Luke. Thank you. Thank you so much. Welcome. Yes. Preach. <laughs> you know, it's preach it's, to me. That's one of my, my two huge college pet peeves. The other college basketball pet peeves, I guess I have a lot, but the one that's related is the people who like to reorder the bracket after every game. Like that is such a pointless waste of time exercise that exists so it, like people talk about clickbait. That is the ultimate clickbait because the reality is there's so many interconnected parts in this net rating that is a black box that no one go, knows what goes in or comes out that to pretend that, oh, you know, uh, North Carolina won at NC State. That moves the Tar Heels from a, a 10 seed to a nine seed is just it's it's, you know, it's it's uh, it's alchemy. It's just pretending to make gold out of uh, lead. Anyway. I probably have the West Coast teams higher, a little mm -hmm. higher, just because I, I think that's a really good league this year. And I had BYU for a while, who has actually fallen off the bubble now. I'm probably lower on, uh, like, I, I the one team I kind of was looking through is, is, like, UCLA, just because I just feel like that's a team that's just, like, so unpredictable and you can't count on. Their analytics are pretty good, but they just have some games they, they lost that they never never should have lost. Uh, if they're as good as we, as we think they are. But that's always, for me, the challenge in being an AP voter is I'm trying to balance the, the, the predictive part of it that Jesse focuses on, how good we think you are, and then the more results-based part of it, which is, which is how good have you actually been. And, and my, my thing is, you know, we can take some of this out of the committee's hands, that there are really good ways to measure resumes that don't involve quadrants in the net and stuff. And the committee can still have a job. Like they can still sit courtside and, and wear their lapel pins and feel important because they have to decide where teams go and shuffle teams around. So you don't have, you know, three big 10 teams in the same pod and whatnot. Uh, they can still advance the referees, which they love to do one time all year. They get to choose who, which referees advance. It sounds like a wonderful part of being on the committee. And, and they can argue with CBS over whether, you know, Kansas plays UNC in the, in the elite eight or the final four, but the, 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 the long and the short of it is we have really good ways of determining which team has done better, regardless of the schedule they played. Like that was the thing that bugged me in, in 2019 when NC State got the shaft. 
is they had a terrific net, but they had a terrible non-conference strength of schedule because they knew that a young team. And the committee basically said, well, yes, you performed very well against that schedule, but your schedule wasn't very good, so we're leaving you out, which is, think about what nonsense that is. We have a way to determine how NC State would play against a better schedule, and the answer is, like Jesse said earlier, when you beat bad teams by a lot, it typically means you're pretty good. All right, so that that's that's my big rant on bracketing <laughs> and AP voting and all of that, but I do think people get too caught up in, what have you done for me lately? Who'd you beat last week? And they lose track of the big picture. You got to remember, it's a 30-plus game season. One game is just one game. And, and if you're doing this right and having the right approach, you should be looking at this holistically. And the fact that Duke beat Kentucky in game one should matter when they lose to Miami in game 21 or whatever it is. And you shouldn't be dropping Duke from – and I'm just using Duke as an example because I know they're scheduled pretty well. But you shouldn't be dropping Duke from you know 3 to 11 just because, well, Miami's bad. They lost to Miami. There's a lot – you know, there's a lot of water already behind that dam. And we, we lose sight of a lot of those things when we get into bracketing and, and selection. And there's a really easy and smart way to do it. We've already done all the math. These, this is a, an absolute now, like the firmness of the earth. And, and we just kind of continue to inject sub subjectivity into, into this process for various political reasons. And, and I think, Jesse, you made a really good, interesting point on Twitter the other day talking about quad wins and that seems like that with the net has just become this thing that we talk about so much when a quad one win can be anything from beating a team that's ranked in the net one through 30 at home but it can also be neutral court one through 50 and away one through 75 so a huge range in there of what a quad one win can actually mean what do you think of the quad system of the way that teams are being evaluated well, I'm just going to piggyback on Luke, and I will try to keep this short to not make it super boring because I know I can get off into the mass stuff. But so let me start with this. I always have to start with this. The RPI was a disaster. Okay. So the <laughs> RPI is gone. That is the number one most important thing. KU for years and years and years gamed the system. Um, it used to be half of your RPI was the winning percentage of the teams that you played. So Kansas every year in their non-con would bring in like Vermont to Allen Fieldhouse, a game they'd be favored by 20 points. Vermont would lose by 20. Then Vermont would go back to the American East and be like 24 and five for the season. And that was half of KU's RPI was the teams like Vermont going up and beating up on bad opponents. KU's RPI would lap the field and everybody'd be like, well, why is KU's RPI so good? Well, it's because they gave the system, you know? So at least that's gone, okay? So anything's better than the RPI. Let's start with that. But Luke made the point, and then this is exactly right. We have the computer power now. Um, it's easy. The quadrant system, what it's supposed to do is add some subjectivity to something that doesn't have to be subjective. And overall, what they're trying to do is separate this out into tiers and, and reward you for good victory. So like in general, I understand the human part of like trying to get a committee and let them compare teams resume wise. But what I would do, and, and this sounds like the, the road that Luke would go down too, we have this metric in net, which uh, Luke, you said it's a black box. It's not really a black box. Bart Torvik just tweeted out a couple of days ago. It's a direct correlation almost with Ken Palm. Okay. I mean, it's like everybody is on the Ken Palm line basically. So we know that these predictive metrics are being used for the net. All you have to do is use that. And there's a, a, a new statistic called wins above bubble. And basically it says, Hey, what would an average bubble team do against this opponent in this 
arena. So if you're playing at Baylor, by the way, let's say you're playing at Baylor like Kansas did, a bubble team would win that game 15% of the time, okay? So if you win, you get credit for 85% win above bubble. If you lose, you lose 0.15 on, on wins above bubble. And then you add every single game of the season on every team, you add that number up and you have one metric. And you can compare Duke to Kansas to Virginia Tech to uh, Gonzaga. It doesn't matter. You can compare all those teams together. So this is, I think this is what, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is what I'm talking about. This would be my solution to it. You're giving credit to teams for wins. You're giving credit for what they've done in the season and you're letting yourself compare every single team. And that way I would just see the field based off of that. I would say, Hey, okay, Providence, you've won all these close games. Good job. Here's what your wins above bubble is. It's ninth. You're a three seed. And now the tournament committee could still go in and say, Hey, okay, we can't have Kansas and Baylor playing each other because they're one and two seed. We got to switch them around. Like you said, you can have the tournament committee and still have them do certain things, but we have the computer power to make this an equitable process and not have humans make a bunch of bad errors when they're trying to be computers. We just have to have some faith in it and do it. But, uh, and the other fun part about that is if we did that, wins above bubble could, could update every single day. So if you are, for instance, Oklahoma on the bubble, you can look and say, Right now we're in the field. If we lose this game, we might not be in the field. If we win this game, this is where we move. And in real time, we don't have all these bracketology shows and Joe Lunardi's trying to guess what's happening. We know what's going to happen in real time. So that's the way I would do it. And uh, that's sort of the the step I would take. Uh, Again, it's better than RPI. We're moving in the right direction. I just think we could take another step. And you take a team like Murray State, like people are like, oh, well, we really don't know how good they are in the Ohio Valley. It's it's tough because they have a – we know exactly how good they are. They're the 23rd best resume in the country. They're a six seed, period. Ends of, end of story. If you're doing this right, Murray State is a six seed. They're playing like a third seeded Houston and Fort Worth. It, done. I mean, it's, it's, it's simple. And then, and, then, and then you don't have, you know, these accusations of bias and, and, and these, these red herrings. Well, you know, their non-conference strength of schedule was well. Who gives a crap? How'd they do against those teams? That's all that matters. And, 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 you know, I will give the committee credit. They have moved away. The original RPI sorting system did not take home games or road games into account. So you could game the system that way by playing a bunch of good teams at home and then playing bad, you know, you, you could get, there are ways to game the system. You used to be able to play division two teams and game the system that way. I mean, there are a million ways to game the old system. The idea of having quadrant wins which people, I, I'm surprised people still don't get this. I saw this the other day. Well, why? If you beat Vanderbilt at home, how is that the same as beating Virginia on the road or, you know, whatever, vice versa? Well, I, they're trying to acknowledge that a home court win is less valuable than a neutral court win is less valuable than a road win. But we already know all those values. We don't have to pick one through 30 and one through 50 and one through 75. And so they've created this very arbitrary sorting mechanism to help them understand the bigger numbers, but the reality is there's, there's just, there's better ways to do it than that. That's a, that's a terrible way to do it because you create arbitrary cutoffs that penalize teams for things they didn't do or reward teams for things they didn't do when we could do it on a little tiny granular scale with decimal points and things that give us actual results. The problem is there are a lot of people, especially in power conferences, very invested in the current system as opposed to what Jesse and I have talked about, because it rewards them. The, you know, generally speaking, the RPI certainly did. 
the the net sort of does the quadrants certainly do it rewards teams that play a harder schedule because you have more opportunities for quad one wins and losses and the committee will look at a team that's two and oh in quad one and a team that's seven and five in quad one and be like, ooh seven quad one wins that's, that's good that's good we need to get them in when in reality the team that's two and oh in quad one has beat both the good teams it's played the other teams lost to five of them so you know we just we we, we we have a bad system. It's set up that way partially for a reason, but I do think we've seen over the last couple of years progress toward the people in power, um, especially some of the people at the NCAA as, as that organization has turned over a little bit, I think have a better understanding of where they, they need to get to. And I think the net is a sign of that. The NCAA didn't have to do that. And it really kind of brought in people like Ken Pomeroy and, and uh, Kevin Paga and people like that who are out there trying to find new ways of measuring this stuff. And listen to them, and, and I don't think what it came up with is perfect. I still think one of the reasons is it doesn't correlate perfectly to Kempom is there's an uncapped efficiency reward in there, which rewards teams for beating up on bad teams as opposed to beating good teams. But it's better than what we had for sure. So anyway, that's uh, Jesse and I are obviously on the same page on this. We need to bring in, like, I don't know, DeCourcy or somebody to argue with us about this stuff. So we are going to get into your guys' final four picks, games we're most excited to watch this week. And then we'll have a special segment at the end where we're going to talk about women's basketball with Augusta Stone, who's going to come in. But first, before we get into all of that, we're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, the First Federal Bank of Kansas City. Make the big moments possible with First Federal Bank of Kansas City's March Rate Special. Earn 0.55 annual percentage yield when you open a new 11-month certificate of deposit. Already bank with us? Get started by depositing $25,000 in new funds. New to First Federal? Join us with a $1,000 deposit. Learn more at ffbkc.com moments and meet our team at any banking center to open your account today. Visit ffbkc.com moments for more. First Federal Bank of Kansas City. Because banking is personal. Member FDIC. All right, so final four picks. Like we mentioned, there's a lot of teams that have a chance to go far. It's going to, I think, depend a lot on how things are seated and matchups as it always does. But it seems, at least to me, when I'm thinking about final four picks this year, that I'm having going back and forth on a lot more teams than I normally would. Jesse, I'll start things with you. At this current moment in time, who are the four teams that you see in the final four? Yeah, again, and we can't predict the bracket. So, you know, obviously mm -hmm. the caveats go with that. Um, I love Gonzaga. I mean, I got to put them in there. I think they're going to be, you know, favorite to sail on uh, to the final four when, when this whole thing comes out. So, you know, I, I put them in pen. They're, they are not going anywhere in my particular bracket. Um, I'll probably stick with Arizona. You know, they've just had such an impressive season under Tommy Lloyd. They are big and they run and they have an impressive, um, you know, balanced sort of team that you like this time of year. And, um, you know, I've been impressed with what they've done so far this season. I would say, you know, it's weird because like how many of these kind of off weird picks are you going to make in your final four? Right. Usually there's one team, but, uh, you know, if you pick too many crazy ones, they burn you. So good. I'll go ahead and put Houston in there. Um, I'm not afraid. I, I know they're a little bit aggressive defensively. And as we mentioned before, uh, they haven't, they don't play the top level competition, which again, hasn't affected Gonzaga. If you're a good team, you're a good team, you're a good team. Um, so I'll, I'll stick with them because I've been higher on them all year than most people. And, and I'll figure that uh, they've done this before. You know, it's not like they haven't made the final four lately. They have. So um, I, I'll say that uh, Kelvin Sampson can do it once again. And 
I guess that leaves me with some sort of wild card that I need to throw out there. Houston's a little bit of one, but man, they absolutely burned me last year, but I, I'll probably go back to the well again. Um, I think there's some really deep underlying numbers that really like UConn. And if you are going to pick a team that like in March Madness comes out of nowhere and you say, oh, I didn't think that team would make it. And here they are. Uh, UConn seems to have that, that history of going in. That's not the reason I would pick them. Um, but, you know, some of the shot numbers out there really, really like them, just like they did a year ago. And uh, that's probably not the biggest Big East team that's going to be picked because of, we just talked about uh, my favorite team out there, Providence. But uh, if you want a dark horse, that's probably who I'd go with at this point. And a big win they were able to get over Villanova over this past week at home. That could be a kind of win that builds some momentum towards March. Luke, what are you thinking right now of your final four picks? Um, you know, I, there's, there's a, to me, there's, as, as we, we talked about a little bit, I, I think there's, there's probably 10 teams that are can kind of throw a bucket over from Gonzaga to Houston. Um, and I, I, I do kind of think you can do a little bracket prediction and narrow this stuff down a little bit. So, I mean, I'm going to take Gonzaga because uh, pretty much since 2017, you can count on them, at, you know, that it's, it's not the sort of Gonzaga falling short that we, we, you know, the reputation there. And to me, that eliminates Arizona because I think one of those two teams is going to come out of the West. I think those two are going to get slammed together as the one and the two. They're from different conferences. They're both going to go to San Francisco. Um, so I'm going to take the Zags there. Uh, I'm going to take Duke because I think that eliminates Kentucky because I think Duke and Kentucky are going to play in Philadelphia because I think CBS is going to insist that Duke and Kentucky play in Philadelphia 31 years later or 30 years later. Um, and uh, the other two teams I like, I like because they have smooth paths. And I think when you look at the pod system, there are teams like Kansas in 2018 that really didn't, could have stayed at home for most of the tournament. They went from Wichita to Omaha. And I feel like teams that get that sort of stay close to home advantage uh, typically do pretty well. I like Purdue to go Indianapolis, Chicago. And I like Baylor to go Fort Worth, San Antonio. I think those are really smooth paths for those teams. Now, Baylor going forward, San Antonio, I think they'll probably be with Houston in that pod, um, depending on how the, whether the committee looks at them or Texas Tech kind of in that uh, Fort Worth. Kansas could potentially be in Fort Worth too. Uh, but I, I, I like Baylor uh, out of San Antonio and, and Purdue out of Chicago. That's just sort of my guessing based on the way CBS usually likes things. Um, I, and I don't think, uh, I think probably a Gonzaga, Duke, Purdue, Baylor Final Four is a little bit front running and we may get you know, like a Houston, um, you know, potentially, uh, you know, Villanova, I think is going to have a chance, especially if they're like a three seed in Philly and get that ridiculous home court advantage. Uh, but, but, but I, I think those are, I probably would have said those were the four best teams in December, mid December. And typically that's a decent way to, to kind of identify who's going to be there still at the end. I keep going back and forth on Purdue because obviously that offense is so good, but the concerns defensively there and some execution, you know, issues that game late against Michigan state. Some of those inbounds out of bounds play from both those sides were uh, just not what you want to see from a, a team this time of year. But I mean, just so many different offensive weapons on that Purdue team. I'm really interested to see if they're able to get stops when they need to in a tournament setting. I agree with you guys both on Gonzaga. That's a team that I definitely have chalked in there. Um, I didn't have, I had Baylor 
in teams that I thought could make the final four for most of this year. And I didn't include them in the first episode last week because I was concerned about that injury to Jonathan Chamachachua and how it would affect things. Seeing them be able to beat Kansas and kind of see them in some recent games and just knowing who Scott drew as a coach that a lot of members of that team have been there before. I think if they can get some of those other injury concerns sorted out, that they have a real shot at a final four. So I'll put them in there and I'm going to have to say, they're going to have to take a spot that I had last week with Texas tech. Just, I love Texas tech's defense, but offensively there are definitely some concerns there. Uh, So I'm going to have to put them out for now. Then I'm going to put in Arizona as another one of my picks there. Like you said, Luke, it's kind of going to depend on brackets and, and seeding how all of that works out. But right now, you know, top 15 in both offense and defense. When you look at Ken Palm ratings, it's really impressive when you see what Tommy Lloyd has been able to do there. And he's a coach who's coached far in the tournament before under Mark Few at Gonzaga. So I'm liking those three. And then I guess to pick kind of more of a, a wild one, I would have to go with uh, Arkansas. They've, you know, had a really, really impressive run lately with their only loss since January 12th has been at Alabama, a team that just has a very weird resume is back in the AP poll this week, but just has been so inconsistent is Alabama. But when you look at what Arkansas has been able to do, beating Kentucky, who was a team that, you know, I've been going back and forth with and really had in, uh, I think has the ability to make a final four as well. But I think that Arkansas is building momentum at the right time. I really like the way that JD Note is playing right now. I think a guy that needs to be talked about a bit more for first team all American and in some of those best player of the year conversations, he's been really, really impressive. And I think having a guard like that is really helpful in the tournament. And then you've, uh, you know, had a guy Jalen Williams down low who has, you know, been surpassing my expectations as well. And they just seem to be rolling right now. So I think that they have the potential uh, to go farther. Yeah, and I do want to uh, at least say that if this was PTI, um, I would be giving Luke DeCock all the points because him going – I was playing checkers with picking my best teams, favorite teams, and he was going into the brackets. Right, yeah, exactly. I was playing checkers, and Luke over here is playing 3D chess. So I I, I feel like (laughs) if I got like one click on the PTI – uh, Luke, you just heard the click, 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 click after that because uh, he, he showed me up. So I'm, I'm pretty impressed. Probably put a hair too much thought into that. But <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I do think that when you look at, I, I think the committee can be a little predictable at times and you can sort of game a little of this out. Like you could, there was a period of time where you expected UNC to play Kentucky and Kansas. Um, I think this year they're going to try to get Duke and Kentucky in the same bracket. Um, you know, and, and only really, I mean, I mean, I think you can count on one of the good top two seeds in the West coming out. And I, Arizona could absolutely beat Gonzaga. That wouldn't surprise me. But I feel like they're going to be the one in the two out West and kind of got to flip a coin between them. But so, as I said earlier, I don't think the line between one and, and ten maybe is, is huge. Um, and I'm probably biased towards Purdue, having seen them beat UNC and NC State this year. Uh, that looked like a that looked like a terrific team to me, although they barely beat a terrible NC State team. So maybe I should, uh, you know, retract that pick. But I, I think Purdue's going to get a nice smooth ride, and and 
has a decent chance to win the Big Ten tournament, which would send that defensive rating number, you know, plummeting and get them into a, a frame that we're more used to seeing with Final Four contenders. And that brings us into games that we're most excited to watch this week. One of those ones that I had on my list this week was Purdue at Wisconsin. I think that'll be a really fun battle between players there, Jaden Ivey, J- uh, Johnny Davis, two guys also in the National Player of the Year conversations, a big game for Big Ten tournament seeding. We're recording this on Monday, guys. So Baylor, Texas is on Monday night. So it's not going to be a game we have to watch and we won't have the result of that as we're recording this now. But Purdue at Wisconsin is definitely a game that I have circled for this week among many others, including Providence at Villanova. Uh, I think that'll be a really exciting one as well. Jesse, what are the games that you are most looking forward to this week? I mean, this is going to be like the total homer pick, right? I mean, if I just pick a Duke game and a Kansas game, I mean, that's, but I, I am interested in Texas this week. Um, mm-hmm. t- hosting Texas Tech, Big Monday. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Baylor, hosting Baylor on Big Monday. And that's going to go a long way toward determining whether Kansas needs to really play well to, to lock up the Big 12. Uh, and then obviously Kansas has its senior night where they've got a zillion guys that uh, are in their supposed to be last year of eligibility. We'll see what the COVID rules coming up on Saturday and Kansas has a ridiculous streak of winning on senior nights somewhere in 35 years, something like that. But uh, it could be the big 12 title potentially on the line. And then we mentioned the coach K game. I mean, how could you not mention that one? Yeah. Uh, that, that one I, I saw Luke can probably tell better, but like the secondary market, those seats are <laughs> five grand or something. I mean, it's almost more than the Super Bowl. So uh, you're not going to be able to watch college basketball this weekend and avoid the Coach K final home game at Duke thing. And uh, that, for good reason, should be taking over almost everybody's headlines. Yeah, the the they were already starting to run promos uh, Sunday for that before yeah. a week away. So, And I was there last week for a women's basketball game, and obviously Krzyzewskiville was in its sort of full pomp out there. So the students will be thoroughly unshowered by the time Saturday rolls around. Um, that game, obviously is dominating my week. I'd be remiss not to leave it off the list. I don't really have anything to add other than the obvious, um, other than we'll have a lot of really good stories this week ahead of it. Um, I've spent the last few days and most of last week working ahead on stuff. So we'll have some good stuff for that. I'm curious in the sec on Wednesday, uh, the Arkansas LSU game, I'm still not 100% sure about Arkansas. Um, LSU's pretty good, um, really kind of an up and down team at times. Uh, that's a that's an interesting one for me because the SEC is so deep this year that it's hard to kind of sort through um, once you get you know those those sort of top six teams all can kind of make a case for various uh, award, uh, you know, sort of honors and awards, but, uh, LSU and, and Arkansas to me are two teams that you just kind of don't know. And that'll be, that'll be an interesting one. And there's one other one in the ACC, uh, Wednesday night, it's senior night at Wake Forest. They host NC state. Wake Forest has really been one of the uh, underrated undercovered stories in college basketball this year. They hired Steve Forbes from East Tennessee state two years ago. He put together a team that has one player left from the former coach. He's got four transfers from Oklahoma, Indiana State, Colorado, Ole Miss. He's got a bunch of guys who played for him at East Tennessee State. Uh, they've been on Wake Forest campus during a pandemic. They've had no sense of campus life, and yet they play as together uh, and as as linked as a team um, as any in the ACC. They've got a potential ACC Player of the Year in Alondis Williams, who did 
almost nothing at Oklahoma and has absolutely blossomed at, at Wake Forest um, and a couple other players. That, that's a hell of a story. But we're never going to hear it if Wake Forest loses to NC State because that alone, that they, they can't suffer a loss like that. To get in the NCAA tournament, Wake Forest has got to win the games that it can win and, and make a little noise in, in Brooklyn in the ACC tournament. But I think if Wake can get to the NCAA tournament, maybe Dayton would be great. It's a hell of a story. It really is. Uh, and it's a team built for college basketball in 2022. It's got a couple freshmen. It's got a bunch of senior transfers. It's got a junior transfer. And it's got one senior who played for the previous coach. It's a team that's completely been rebuilt on the fly like, a, like, a, like an NBA team in free agency. But it's worked. And a lot of guys haven't been able to do it. Steve Forbes is kind of, a, kind of an odd bird, but he's, he's been able to make it work. Yeah, real quickly, Steve Forbes, lots of Kansas ties, man. He used to coach at Barden, uh, Juco here in Kansas, and then was a longtime assistant for Greg Marshall, Wichita State. So uh, some people in this area should be familiar with him. Definitely. Those are going to be some great games to watch this week. By the time this comes out, it will officially be March 1st. So such an exciting time of year for college basketball and great to speak with you both and get some insight. So thanks for hopping on. Yeah, pleasure is mine. Yep. Thanks for having us. I'm now joined by Augusta Stone, who covers number one South Carolina for the state, does a great job with her coverage of them, the number one team in the country. How are you doing? Hey, Lila, I'm doing real good. Thanks for having me on. And yes, number one team in the country and my first beat. So no pressure there, right? <laughs> but it, it's been really fun. I've, I've enjoyed it. And thank you so much for, for saying I'm doing a good job. I'm definitely trying my best. <laughs> yeah, they're having a great season. Obviously lost in the national championship last year and are now trying to get back there and win the title. Have been the unanimous number one team for most of the season what has stood out to you about why they've been able to be so dominant? Oh, my goodness. I think overall, one of the biggest things about South Carolina is they can find a new way to beat you pretty much every game. Like, I, I think about, I will say, even as recently as yesterday's game against Ole Miss, right? Like, a lot of people, when they think of South Carolina, obviously the first thing that you think about is their defense and just how absolutely aggressive they are on the boards. And 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 then that those are two aspects that kind of stay consistent. But in terms of offense, they, they do stall out sometimes. And it's not always, you know, the most beautiful basketball, like Don Staley would say. It's not always beautiful. But um, there's, there's, there's these, the, their post players, you have Aaliyah Boston, obviously, and uh, Victoria Saxon, Camilla Cardozo, you have, you have all of these just elite scorers in the paint, but then you also have guards who can absolutely just shoot the ball extremely well on any given day. It just depends on who it is. You know, sometimes it's Zaya, sometimes it's not Zaya Cook. I mean, we've seen, we've seen it fluctuate throughout the year. Basically they can afford because their roster is so deep and they have so many different weapons across pretty much anything you'd want to do. Um, if someone's having an off day, which we've seen, I, I think a lot about Zaya Cook and how she's kind of been up and down this year. She's their leading scorer traditionally, primarily she's had a rough year, but 
it, it, there's enough pieces around her to where they can kind of adjust to whatever's going on. You know, whoever's out, whoever's, you know, in, whoever's playing well, whoever's not, whoever gets fouled. That's one thing about South Carolina. It's just the depth and their ability to find and scheme up a way to be all of these different types of teams mm-hmm. in the SEC, all these different types of teams that they played in uh, the non-conference. And so I think that's it. It's like, which South Carolina are we going to see today? Is Destiny Henderson going to drop 23 points? You know, Aaliyah Boston almost guaranteed to get another double-double, but there's just so many different aspects. And I, I, I could pinpoint all of them, but I think it's just definitely how they can tailor their game to whoever they're playing next. All right. And South Carolina finished the regular season 27 and one. Their only loss coming in a weird game to Missouri. I was there covering it. I'm still very unclear as to how Missouri pulled that off shorthanded, but you never know if those sorts of things seems like it was very much kind of one of those mentality games, but South Carolina finishes 27 and one. Uh, I have to give a huge shout out to her hoop stats, which we're going to reference throughout this a little bit. I had been saying for so many years, there needed to be something like Ken Palm for women's basketball. If you guys listening have not checked that out, you should definitely check that out, especially as we get into March here, um, because they are just incredible with their advanced women's statistics. So right now they have South Carolina with the number one defensive rating in the country. And their offense is, you know, even though, like you mentioned, there could can be some issues there sometimes, it's still ranking fifth in the country. So really just a dominant team in those regards. When you're looking at a national championship team, you want to have, you know, at least a top 20 offense and a top 20 defense. So to be in the top five in both those categories, I think just says a lot about their dominance. How much is this team talking about what happened last year and you know, losing in the final four, you know, just everything that happened in that loss of Stanford. I know that was so tough at the time for them. You could just see the emotion and, uh, you know, Don Staley is obviously a coach that expects to win championships year in and year out. So how have they talked about that this year? What are their goals? Yeah, they, I'm going to be honest with you. They really don't talk about it a lot. I think the most we were able to get out of them was whenever Stanford did come to town right before Christmas. Um, that felt like the most appropriate time to bring it up because it is a sore spot. And I think, you know, when, when Dawn talks to us specifically, she would mention, you know, we've, we've been through it. We've, we took, you know, the time that was needed, especially Aaliyah Boston, you know, she took a lot of time and they they have, you know, the the time to process something that is so close and so painful and it all kind of did, you know, come back up when Stanford came to town um, and that game was an absolute nail biter. Um, South Carolina pulled that, pulled that one out. But I, I think that they feel, I mean, the team is pretty much the same team. They just added four freshmen and three of them are playing. One of them suffered a season ending injury in the second game of the year. Um, so it, it, they are the same team, but the mentality is almost as if this is, you know, a completely different situation. Everything is different. I think um, they've done a really good job at making every game, every win, the loss, anything that's happened kind of feel like, okay, that's the past. This is, this is, you know, now they're not a big team on reflecting at all, really. I mean, I remember, I think I had asked, so ironically, when the Missouri game happened, I had COVID. So I was just completely out of it for like two weeks. I returned and um, they were kind of back on the SEC thing. I think they had won a game against Mississippi State. 
And then there was another game coming up. And I asked Don about, it was my first press conference back in like two weeks because I had COVID. I asked Don, you know, about the Missouri loss. And she was like, oh my goodness, that was so long ago. Like, don't even, don't even think about it. And I was, you know, of course I was respectfully, I was like, you are right. It has been a couple of games, but I mean, it was a weird way to start SEC play after going through one of the toughest like non-conference schedules in the country. So um, they're really big on moving forward. I mean, if I were to ask a question about the regular season title, I think this week, I think Don would be like, "Mm, that's not, (laughs) we just don't care anymore. They're really, really good on, on moving forward. And I think that's um, honestly part of their grit. And I think it's part of their mentality. It's just, championship or bust. And that's what the way it's been since the season started. And I love a point that Don Staley brought up over the past week or so about how the media talks about the national player of the year race. Uh, Her podcast, by the way, is really great uh, on just women's sports. That's been really fun to listen to. Um, And she talked about, I think something that's you know, I've certainly thought about a lot in recent years. It's been very evident on some broadcasts of how the National Player of the Year is talked about and what players are talked about and what aren't. And she made a lot of good points there about whether it's media kind of gravitating towards a lot of these white players, whether it's gravitating towards a lot of guards and flashier players and kind of how that played into Caitlin Clark getting some attention over Aaliyah Boston Aaliyah Boston has just been so dominant. I mean, those are going to be the two players that are really going to be in the conversation there for National Player of the Year race. Obviously, a lot of other great players, but when you're coming down to really that race, it seems like it's going to be between them. Aaliyah Boston averaged 16.8 points, 11.9 rebounds, 2.7 blocks, was shooting 54.4% from the field. What's it been like to to watch her this year and what kind of cases she make for national player of the year? Oh my goodness. I honestly, I, I think Aaliyah Boston is I, Don Staley mentioned this yesterday and I, I just completely agree. She's a generational player and I don't think she's talked about enough like that. I completely agree. I mean, you know, she has kind of every piece of an elite basketball player. She's dominant from regardless of whichever end of the court you're playing in. She's a problem for every coach that has come in. And after the South Carolina game, they look, you know, you'll ask about Leah Boston and they'll be like, I mean, <laughs> what do you do about, about someone playing like that? You know, she's, she's so elite. And I think the, she was already a really great basketball player her first two years here. I think she has made a jump from year two to year three. And I think it's extremely evident in her, the, the, her, her quickness, her footwork, like the little, little things. I think she's just such a smart basketball player. Um, I really like what you mentioned about kind of Caitlin Clark emerging and the differences between like a flashy basketball player and a basketball player who's just simply dominant, simply a problem for, for all these other teams, because I feel like that's the best way to describe Aaliyah Boston. It's like, you can't, you can't, you're not going to stop her from doing what she wants to do. And, and I, I personally think that it kind of boils down to what your definition is of national player of the year. You know, do you want to give it to the player who they're both the way I see it, they're both giving a lot to the game right now. Caitlin Clark is setting all these records, making history for the men's and women's game and like triple doubles with 30 points consecutively, just crazy stuff. 
And, and then you have Aaliyah Boston, who just eclipsed an SEC record in consecutive double-doubles. I mean, at this point, it's a given, you know, that she's going to mm-hmm. do it. And it's probably going to be in the third quarter. I think that you look at, okay, who is creating the most opportunities for their team and who is truly impacting the game on a level that we haven't seen quite like what Aaliyah does. I think what Aaliyah does is very unique. Um, and it just takes watching her, you know, I, I think with Caitlin Clark, you know, watching her is, is a spectacle as well, but Aaliyah Boston's game is one of them that I think can be overlooked if you're not watching South Carolina play. So that would be kind of what I would say to people who maybe aren't sure. It's like, turn on a game and just right. watch her, watch her work. Cause it's yeah. wild. Right. And Caitlin Clark has been really good as well. 27.5 points, 8.3 assists, leading division one in both of those categories. But you do mention that dominance. And I think that's a great point in the impact. And I think for me, a lot of, you know, the national player of the year thing. I mean, when you're the best player by far on the best team by far, that definitely stands out. You mentioned kind of the impact you look at again, with her hoop stats, with, you know, their stats there, and you look at the win share um, and kind of the impact that a player has there, it's at 12.6 for Aaliyah Boston and 10.8 for Caitlin Clark. You look at the per as well, and that's up, uh, you know, eight points, uh, has advantage for Aaliyah Boston. So those are some, you know, impacts there. And I think with just the efficiency as well, she has really stood out, but it is really impressive what Caitlin Clark is doing. I was able to get a share of that regular season Big Ten title, which I know was a goal for her. Obviously, South Carolina is as well, so it's going to be the top seed going into the SEC Women's Tournament. Do you see South Carolina moving through this unscathed? Is there any chance they're getting upset here, or do you think they're just kind of going to roll through? It definitely depends on on the uh... – with the draw they get um I think the most intriguing thing about this SEC tournament that I'm just personally I'm dying to see is the chance that they could face Missouri in the quarterfinals I mean (laughs) when I saw it like line up like that the the journalist in me and all the storylines like I I was like oh my gosh let it be Missouri let it be Missouri um I mean you were at that game you remember it I think I, when I rewatched it, we were all just kind of like, what, what happened? Um, right. I would love to see that rematch. Um, watching the way South Carolina played through the SEC, it's hard for me not to say that they're just going to roll through again. Um, I think there have been some teams that have really surged. I, I was, I was kind of glad to see that they played Ole Miss at home to close out the regular season. I think Ole Miss is really, really hitting a stride in their fourth year with Coach Yo. Like they, when they came here to Columbia, that game was an absolute blowout. There were a lot of factors at play there. That was supposed to be the UConn game. So the crowd was absolutely insane. And Coach Yo said after the game that they definitely reacted to that. So when you have a locked in Ole Miss, I think they're one of the most elite teams in the SEC. And South Carolina still ran away within the fourth quarter. So I do think that they'll roll through the tournament, the SEC tournament, um, but I am hoping so deeply that they get to face Missouri in that first game because that would just be so much fun to to see them kind of on their revenge tour in the season. Um, and the only game they lost. So, you know, you can't build up your resume anymore by, by getting another shot at them. So that's what I want to see for sure. <laughs> yeah, Ole Miss has been dominant. I covered Shakira Austin uh, at the start of her career at Maryland and to see the lead that she's had 
this year in that dominance has been really exciting to see. So like you mentioned, South Carolina is that number one seed there could potentially face Missouri. Um, that's going to be the first game to determine that on Thursday between Missouri and Arkansas. Uh, that'll be on Thursday. And then you'll have the 11 through 14 seed matchups on Wednesday. So South Carolina as a number one seed, you have LSU as a second. Tennessee is a third seed after taking a little bit of a slide uh, with Jordan Horson out, which has really had a huge impact there. Um, and then Ole Miss as the four seed. Florida falls to the five seed after losing to Missouri in their last regular season matchup. Uh, I'm excited also just to see what LSU does. It's been really exciting to see what they're doing in their first year under Kim Mulkey. Um, you kind of knew that she was going to get that thing figured out, but I didn't think she'd get it figured out this quickly. I don't really think anyone did. Um, so it's going to be exciting to see as they continue to keep building and building momentum there. They just had a dominant win over Tennessee, 57-54, but it wasn't really that close throughout. It got closer towards the end, but they were up double digits for most of that game. Again, Tennessee without Corson, who uh, you know suffered a dislocation of her elbow. She's currently out. It's unclear if she's going to be back, when she's going to be back. Uh, they could be getting her back kind of towards the tournament, but we'll be watching that. I don't expect her to be around for the SEC tournament, certainly. So I think LSU and uh, South Carolina are kind of your top two seeds there. I would love to see a matchup between those two teams in the championship. I think that would be a ton of fun. I completely agree. I think I think South Carolina actually got you know a benefit there when they faced LSU. They played them early January, and that was whenever I'm I, I, as an AP voter. That was when I first started paying attention to LSU really closely. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that, I couldn't keep my eyes off of them. You know, I mean, they they played South Carolina extremely well in that game, especially down the stretch, which was I feel like LSU really does that kind of you know tend tend to punch is, is later. Um, Kim Mulkey, I mean, like you said, I had no idea that she'd be able to do this in her first year. Like if you were to tell me like, oh, LSU is going to be the second team in the SEC tournament this year, I'd be like, are you sure about Yeah, that? in this league, like, <laughs> yeah, like really, she's going to do that with, with the, the roster that she has? But she has made that roster look elite. And I, sh she's really, really done a great job. So um, I'm definitely rooting, rooting for that matchup um, to see them again, because they, they played really, really, really well. Um, against each other, a very good game for South Carolina. I mean, a lot of these SEC games were complete and utter blowouts, but the LSU game was was actually pretty tight. So, um, and then like you said with Tennessee, man, I that that them as a three seed with where they're at right now is just fascinating to me. <laughs> I think um, they're a completely different team without Jordan Horston, and um, yeah, so it, it's interesting. I would the way I see it in my head is um, like LSU is very elite. I'm so impressed with Ole Miss right now. Um, and then Florida, I, I'm impressed with Florida, even though they lost to Missouri yesterday. I'm, I'm real impressed with Florida, probably more so than I'm impressed with, with Tennessee right now. I think, you know, the earlier in the season really did bolster them up, but without Orston, without, without green, they're just not the same team. It, it's completely different. And it's, it's a shame because they were, they were doing some really special. Um, I was really enjoying watching them before injuries you can't can't help right. it <laughs> and now they've fallen in the latest ESPN projections this morning they dropped to a five seed uh, and Iowa taking over the four seed there I loved the tournament last year um 
just an incredible product for anyone listening who like is only paying attention towards the end, like start paying attention in for these earlier games. I think when you look at the totality of a tournament, they were closer, more exciting down to the wire games in the women's tournament and the men's tournament last year by a long shot. And it was so much fun to watch. You had a team like Arizona uh, have an upset to get to the final four. And you're starting to see a lot more parity in the game as women's basketball continues to grow when you're looking at the tournament field right now, and just uh, for a little preview for anyone listening at home, just as of where everything is at right now in the latest bracketology, South Carolina is the number one overall seed. You've got NC state Stanford is and Louisville as other number one seeds. Uh, then on the two seed line, a lot of big 12 teams, a team, a conference that has kind of taken a resurgence this year, Baylor, Michigan, Iowa state and Texas, on the three seed line, you've got UConn, Arizona, Oklahoma, and LSU. And on the four seed line, Maryland, Oregon, Notre Dame, and Iowa. Who are you liking right now to make a final four? Are there any kind of upsets or sleeper teams that you're seeing that aren't, you know, on that one or two seed line that you think could make a run? Yeah, I mean, I just first want to mention what Louisville did yesterday against yeah, Notre I mean- Dame. Um, what? (laughs) Like I was watching Missouri, Florida, um, doing all this prep for the SEC tournament. I, you know, keeping an eye on that game. Um, but apparently I didn't keep a close enough. I looked up and I saw the score. It was like 40 to six or three. It was something absolutely buck wild. So, um, Louisville is definitely getting it together when they need to get it together. Um, I've been impressed with Louisville all year. So that's a team that I think, you know, I hear a lot, obviously about South Carolina, NC state hear a lot about, you know, being in the Carolinas, um, and then Stanford for the storylines, but Louisville is one of those teams that I'm super duper intrigued by. Honestly, I think Texas looks really good. That's a team I've been impressed by. Oh, Maryland easily. I think Maryland. I'm glad you said it because I feel like if I say it, it's like, okay, you went to Maryland. So I'm glad you said it because they've been dealing with injuries all year and they have not been healthy all year. Any of their top matchups, they have not been healthy. So exactly. No. And that, that, so when I say, I think Maryland is poised to make, you know, surprise some people, I cannot believe they're a four seed here. I think Okay, I think so they'll move I, up to a three seed line, depending on what they do in the tournament. They really just burdened by injuries there when they went to, I think it was in the Bahamas or somewhere in the islands that they were at a tournament. I was very upset. I was like, really, the year after I graduate, you guys are going to go to an island tournament? I've, I've been waiting for this for four years. But <laughs> they, they go there and they're without most of their best players on the roster. Everyone like got the flu or something. And then Diamond Miller was banged up throughout the earlier year. Faith Masonis, who is a glue uh, person for them, she got injured and is out with a season-ending injury. Now Ashley Owusu has been dealing with different injuries, but you've seen a resurgence, not a resurgence, but just an emergence of Angel Reese, who was injured for most of last year, just as a really dominant player who I don't think is talked about enough nationally. With them and UConn as two teams who have been banged up all year, it's going to be interesting because they're going to be seated lower than you, they normally would be if you looked at those rosters at the beginning of the season. Yeah, UConn is scary right now with Paige Becker's back, and I think she is hungry. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they are definitely- four in Minneapolis too. So 
Yep, 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 yep. Um, but no, Mar- Maryland for sure. I remember when Maryland came came to town because South Carolina played so many of these teams in in the non conference, mm-hmm. and they 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 won all of them. But those games got close. Maryland, I think, gave them one of the toughest challenges. Like aside from Stanford, who who I think that was South Carolina's. Like aside from obviously when they lost, like that game was just very much so they had to be on on on. Um, Maryland played them extremely well, extremely well. Like, I think if they got another shot, especially fully healthy, that would be one of the toughest teams for South Carolina to take. Because I'm putting them in comparison with not only like through the lens of my beat, but also just because I feel like it, it's the it's the common stance to be like, who can challenge South Carolina this year? Um, especially since they played so many of these teams already. <laughs> like they did right. pay, play a fully healthy UConn back when they went to the Bahamas in, in November and they beat them by like 14 points, I think. So it's like one of those things where they're, they're so elite this year, but Maryland for sure. That's, that's my team. That's my sleeper team. hundred percent. And then it's going to be interesting to see what Arizona can do. We're able to get there last year. What idea Barnes has been able to do has been incredible. LSU on that line. Again, another coach that has been there before and knows what it takes. So it's definitely going to be an interesting tournament. I think South Carolina really has the edge. Like that's a team that I definitely see as a final four lock. And I'm interested to see how the bracket shakes out there, but yeah, I I would say Maryland is a sleeper team for me as well. I guess, I mean, if you're talking about a three or four seed line, I guess you could say UConn's a sleeper, but I mean, not really a sleeper. Hard to say that, right? Those those words just left your mouth. UConn's a sleeper. I'm like, whoa. (laughs) What and I'm intrigued. I'm doing? intrigued by Michigan on the two seed line. They've been really dominant all year. That's a team that had its way with Maryland in both matchups. Um, even with some of the health issues there, uh, gets the number one overall seed for the, uh, I believe, for a Big Ten tournament uh, and is tied for a regular season title there. They're just a really good team. Uh, been impressive to see, and they haven't really been able to get that far before. So, I'm, you know, you've always had the SEC and ACC and Pac-12 really dominate uh, these uh, Final Four kind of matchups, uh, being those championship contenders. But the Big Ten and Big 12 really both had two huge seasons this year. You see it reflected in the seed lines. So that's going to be great to follow in all of those tournaments. I think we're going to have a really fun conference tournament week it's the best time of year. So excited to get into this all and so great to have you on. Excited to see you at the SEC Women's Tournament. Yes, I'm so excited. And thank you so much for inviting me on. I would love to come back anytime. Um, this was super fun. And I'm always down to, to chat women's hoops. Always down. Yep. And if you guys aren't already following Augusta, be sure to follow along with her work up close with the number one team in the country. Definitely some stuff that you want to follow along with as we get in the March here. Yes, thank you. Um, my Twitter is at Augusta L Stone. Augusta Stone was already taken. I don't know who took it because <laughs> you'd think it'd be a pretty hard name to, to take. But um, yep, just follow along with me there, state.com, uh, posting stuff and working hard. And, you know, the days are going by fast. So <laughs> very excited. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah.